Listen to these guys. Aren't they neat? Wouldn't you think their podcast's complete? Wouldn't you think they're the hosts who've covered everything? They've got in-jokes and segments aplenty. They've got catchphrases and mess-ups galore. You want homework time? I've done 20. But who cares? No big deal. Stay tuned. Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated. I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And I'm Chris Leva. And this is our podcast about storytelling, animation, and 90s Disney songs. Repurposed for our needs. Today, we are doing the fifth part of our question mark part series. Now that we're near the end, I feel confident in saying seven part. This is five I feel of, like we're... Yeah, seven? Five of seven, unless an eighth one begins before we finish. We'll see. Um, and today we're covering the Disney Renaissance, which is uh, 1989 to 1999. Bookended by the movies The Little Mermaid, which kicked everything off. The movie that changed it all. The Little Mermaid that could... And <laughs> girl, could she? Fitting. Um, and ending with um, Tarzan in 1999. So to refresh where we left off, we had the late 70s, 80s weirdness of Disney, and uh, which gave us such gems as the Black Cauldron, one of the lowest points in Disney history. <laughs> But one of the greatest films, I don't know. My wife gave me the Black Cauldron um, novel for my birthday this year. I hear that's better. <laughs> it would kind of have to be. Um, <laughs> I would hope. I would hope. So we get the Black Cauldron. We get Don Bluth leaving to form his own studio um, and making some interesting films all his own. Um we get, what is it? What's that other one? Uh, Great Mouse Detective. We get Oliver and Company, where they're almost there, but not quite there. Here's some songs. We, here's some talking animals. <laughs> we get the move um, to Michael Eisner being in charge and Jeffrey Katzenberger, you know, doing what they do, um, which is why we get, you know, Oliver and Company. So we're almost there, but not quite. And then in the actual Renaissance, we have... Um, I've written down a list of films, some of which are cheating, but I wrote them down anyway. Um, <laughs> yes, we, we're, let's list the Disney films, and then we'll, we'll talk about the parallel things that are going first. Okay, so just Disney films considered part of the Renaissance. Um, Little Mermaid in 1989. <clears throat> You get like this weird appendix of the 80s, The Rescuers Down Under in 1990. Mm -hmm. So that's officially the Renaissance, but not spiritually. Yeah, they started it and they finished it during the Renaissance. Yeah. Um, Beauty and the Beast in 1991, which we've already done an episode of our podcast on, so you can go back and listen to that. We'll link in the show notes. Um, Aladdin in 92, Lion King in 94. You've had like this big high streak, and then you have Pocahontas in 95. You're starting to feel it, the machine kind of wobble a little bit. Yeah. 
Uh, a lot of, of it. A lot of it. Hunchback of Notre Dame <laughs> in 96, which I think is arguably the worst movie in this period, which still makes it pretty good. Yeah, it, it is the worst film because it's it has some of the best things and some of the worst things. It It, it capitalizes on some things that they do really well, which we'll talk about because we're talking about Little Mermaid. Asterisk note. Chris can say that it does some things really good because theater people really like Hunchback. I don't know that other people do, but specifically theater people seem to like Hunchback. Really? That's what I've noticed, yes. Oh, gosh. Is it all a lie? Is It It might oh. be. It's a theater people lie. Goodness. Okay, moving on. Um, 97, you get Hercules, um, which is the movie that I thought everyone liked and it turns out as an adult, um, some people like instead of the reverse. Really? I thought everybody liked that film. That's what I thought. <laughs> I don't know. But it is a ripoff of the 80s musical, The Gospel Colonus, which does gospel music and an Oedipus play. Mm-hmm. And study of Hercules, which is gospel music and the story of Hercules. So, yeah. Um, then the, uh, the Other Golden Child, one of my favorite movies from the Renaissance, uh, Mulan in 1998. Uh, so good. And then we end with Tarzan in 1999. But of course, spiritually, we'll talk about this film later. Maybe not that specific film, but it's period later. In 2009, you get The Princess and the Frog, which is the same formula as everything else in this period. So I do want to mention it comes back with a vengeance later. Yeah, the Disney Renaissance did try to restart once again. It, it tried, and they figured out what they wanted to keep, and they put it in the seventh part of the series we'll talk about. <laughs> So let's let's talk through this. Now, those were the Disney films. There were some other cultural landmarks that happened during this time um, in animation that are well worth noting. That Disney collaborated on in some way or did. Yes. Um, the first would be in 1993, we get The Nightmare Before Christmas. Which is a movie musical, yes. Mm-hmm. In 1995, we get the first Pixar feature film, Toy Story. So I feel like this is where Disney starts looking at these other guys over here and wondering, well, how are we going to answer that little thing? Which turned out to be a that big thing. Yeah. Which turned out to be, let's spend a lot of money on that big thing. <laughs> Let's let's put a ring on that big thing. <laughs> mm. Mm, wrong sentence. Yeah. Um, then we have. <laughs> and then in nineteen, <laughs> woo, in nineteen ninety five, we get a goofy movie, which is some people think that it's a Disney feature film. It's actually not. It's from the Disney Toon Studio. Um, so it's related. It's a, it's a stepchild. It was theatrical um, though, right? Yes, it was theatrical release. Um, it is one of my favorites from this time period, though it's not part of the Disney Renaissance per se. Um, and then in 1996, we get James and the Giant Peach, the spiritual sequel to The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I love James and the Giant Peach. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so I'm afraid to see it again. But... Not having seen it in 20 years, I love James and the Giant Peach. 
Yeah, I, I haven't seen it since it came out, and I'm about to watch it in the next couple of weeks once we finish reading James and the Giant Peach, because that's the rule in our house. You have to read the novel first. Well done. So, Tell me what you uh, feel about it. I will. Once, I re- <laughs> once we get there, I will, I will revisit it. So today, while this is a jam-packed period of official movies, and you start to see Disney release like other animated theatrical movies in addition to their main canon... Um, we're going to talk about the arc that this took, how did it begin, and how does it end, and what changed in the middle. Because um, there's a lot in the middle. They start winning awards again and all that good stuff. Yes. This is really amazing stuff that, that they were doing. Um, I wouldn't say they found the secret formula. I just feel like they knew they knew what they could do, and they just kept doing it. Um, cause I would say the Disney films in this era don't feel formulaic, but they are doing what works. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. Um, so it's not like, yes, we have to have this character that does this and this character that does this. Well, they, we do need talking sidekicks. So they do get sidekicks and songs and they, they realize that that works, but it's not so much a single story that they try to tell. But we do get start to get elements that they build into the foundation. But in these films, while um, thematically linked in some ways, still feel really, really distinct on their own. So you can start to feel some sameness, and part of it has to do with um, Alan Menken. Um, Alan Menken is involved with, let's see, how many of these films? Uh, Little Mermaid. Not The Rescuers Down Under. (laughs) Nope. Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Hunchback, Hercules, and that's it. So not Lion King, Mulan, or Tarzan. Right. So five of the eight films, Alan Menken is involved in the music. So, and in, as a side note, since we talked about spiritually getting back to the Renaissance with Princess and the Frog, Alan Menken was originally hired on to do the music in there until John Lasseter said, "Uh, let's get Randy Newman. Makes sense. John! (laughs) Lasseter! So, um, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman together helped really launch this period as we get into Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. And if you want to hear a lot of our conversation on that, on Beauty and the Beast, listen to that episode. But they they are key to building the heart of the Disney Renaissance, those two folks. And Eisner, but from afar. Yes, yes, right. So what else do we have to say about this period? You have a couple of other, like, I do. <laughs> overview things. I do. I feel like there's so much going on right now because like, it was such a good time for animation. Um, at this time, Eisner also broke the longstanding rule and started doing animation for television with Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, I think partly originally to make money, but it also gave us such gems as like <laughs> DuckTales and Gargoyles and Darkwing Duck and some other stuff that I wrote down. Goof Troop, Tailspin, all the like 
Disney Afternoon. Yeah, the the Disney Afternoon, the the television shows that spin off of all of the Renaissance movies we're about to talk about. Little Mermaid and Aladdin. <laughs> and Hercules, and the one that was almost based on Beauty and the Beast. Um, and Lion King. Yeah, most of them. Most of them. <laughs> um, and then it was such a successful formula that other movies tried to adapt this at the same time. And while I don't think there are too many memorable non-Disney movies from the 90s, I'm trying to think if I stand by that. There aren't too many. I think there are a handful. Um, some of them I haven't seen forever. We've talked about Fern Gully before, of course. I think Fern Gully stands up there with some of the medium of the Disney Renaissance. Mm -hmm. um, Anastasia and Prince of Egypt, I know, come up a lot, and people like. I haven't seen them since the 90s. Um, I don't know, do you have thoughts? Um, I feel like Prince of Egypt, I remember being really struck um, by... Uh, it was really interesting to hear um, Stephen Schwartz did some really wonderful stuff with the music. We're like, well, if we can't have Alan Menken, I guess we could get Stephen Schwartz. So if we get a theater composer um, and lyricist, we'll get him in there because Stephen Schwartz actually um, came in and, and did some work, um, for example, on Hunchback. Um, so he was involved in the Disney Renaissance too. So it, it's just interesting. On He did lyrics for Hunchback. And I did not make this connection because I didn't see this final movie until I was an adult. Um, that it is also a 90s animated movie musical um, that is not family friendly, but worth noting um, is South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. <laughs> Which, um, not being a South Park fan, I could say is a pretty solid movie. Again, not great for families, so if you're not a family, you're fine. Go watch it. If you are a family, maybe don't watch it with the kids. <laughs> I would agree with that statement. And it definitely is responding to the entire Disney renaissance we're talking about. And is equally influential? Question mark? I, when it came out, my, my brother wanted to watch it with us. My brother, who's seven years younger, and I told my dad, I was like, I don't, he should not watch this. And he's, he's like, no, it's fine. I'm like, it's animated. I'm like, no, he should not watch this, please. And then he, then as it started, he's like, it's like, Jason, don't watch this. I'm like, <laughs> like, yeah, I told you. I told you not. To. It's not appropriate. <laughs> uh, that's the lesson that I think most parents learned. Of, it's fine. It's animated. <laughs> no. I'm shaking my head. <laughs> So let's let's look into should we start looking into Little Mermaid just so we can see Yes, please. where the Renaissance gets its spirit. It is it is a spirit and I feel like it's such a thrill to rewatch this after so long because like now knowing all these intellectual facts about the Renaissance and the history of Disney like the movie begins here's legitimately what happened. I turned on this movie I turned on this movie and there's like, it's above the water and there's fog and like this weird ship kind of thing and some crudely drawn dolphins that don't look like the best of the Disney Renaissance at all. And like a pirate shanty starts and I had to pause and go like, is this the right movie? <laughs> <laughs> Am I watching the right Disney film? I don't remember the sea shanty at all. The dolphins are not up to par. <laughs> 
Did you feel the same way? Is it just like me being no. so long? No, I was like, oh, I remember those bad dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't remember the bad dolphins. No, I remember being like, Who, what, what's up with the, those dolphins? <laughs> and then that, that ship comes through. Yeah, yeah, I remember the dolphins. Like, specifically because they're just sitting there and it was really bad looks on their faces. And then the boat comes through and I'm like, oh, that's magical. Like, oh, okay. They, they had a skimp on the dolphins because they went for the for the ship, which looks magnificent. The ship does look good, but it's still the song threw me off. Like, I have listened to the soundtrack way more times than I would like to count. <laughs> so my sister, this was her Disney movie, so we watched it like every Friday night. I've seen this movie probably like 57 times, but not since like 1997. And my wife's brother was the same way. He was watching it like every weekend. When he got it for Christmas, apparently, they were like, oh, that's for Rochelle because it's a girl's movie. She's like, no, he loves it. It's his. <laughs> <laughs> so she has the whole movie memorized because of growing up with her brother watching it so often. And uh, I respect Rochelle's memory. I'm sorry, Dr. Rochelle Briggs-Leva's memory. Because um, <laughs> I clearly do not remember it as well after having seen it so many times. <laughs> yeah, she was doing all of Sebastian's lines, and it, it was just pretty amazing. Wow. Um, so what was your experience as a, as a young person with this? Did you see it in theaters? I saw it in theaters. I remember not wanting to see it. Mm. Um, it was a Disney movie, but it didn't look interesting to me. And I think part of that had to do with marketing. Mm -hmm. um, part of it, if you, let's see, how old was I in 89? I think I was 10. I was like, it, it looks like a, a princess movie. And it didn't, the way they marketed it didn't really get the energy behind it. Because it has an interesting amount of adventure and character that you don't get from trailers. And it feels just like, um, for lack of a better phrase from a 10-year-old, like a girl movie. Mm. You know, it, it doesn't feel like something I would want to see. Um, and so I went in very reluctantly and I came out like, that was an awesome movie. Um, <laughs> Um, and it, it helped that it was when I did started doing research, because when I love something, I just start researching everything. I want to know everything about it and learn more. And I was like, wait a minute, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, because I loved Little Shop of Horrors. Of course you did as a kid. As Why a am kid? I not surprised? <laughs> like, that was one of my favorite movies as a kid was Little Shop of Horrors. I was like, wait a minute. No wonder. Like. Oh, well, of course, it has the DNA of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken in it. Like, of course, I love that movie. So I remember just being ready for, like, well, if the next one has Howard Ashman and Alan Menken in it, let's just, then it's going to be perfect, too. I was just ready for it. Um, and I think the music with the, <laughs> if you take out Fathoms Below, um is is top notch um i think fathoms below being the sea shanty yeah that's the sea shanty that's the name of it fathoms below um which at the same time uh frozen 
gets a lot of the same criticism for their openings. They're like, oh, it's fathoms below, in, but it's about ice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is a totally valid criticism of that. It's like, I don't even know what they're singing about, but it's setting the scene. <laughs> I don't understand half of these lyrics, but it's, you know, I, I understand it's about mermaids. Or why this is happening at all. <laughs> Right. I don't know who these people are, but they seem excited to be on a boat. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting beginning. It's not <laughs> what I expected at all. It's It doesn't prepare you. It doesn't say, like, this is a Disney renaissance. Get ready. No, no. It's not until you get under the water that it gets better. And I would say, are you going to fit under the sea pun there? I was I was gonna head there and then I decided against it. Okay, but I would I would say under the sea is probably like <clears throat> the shark chase is probably like oh there might be something special here. Then you get to under the sea and I think that's the moment you're like the next ten years of this is gonna be great. <laughs> under the sea, especially <sighs> which the won thing, the Oscar by the way. It did. The thing that cements under the sea as a spectacular moment is that yes we just had this crazy song about one character trying to convince another character of something about their character it's just so good because it's it's making an argument through a song and then to realize that that other character has left <laughs> before the end of the song so the period is she's gone again <laughs> It's, it just undercuts it so beautifully, but it doesn't negate the facts, anything that's happened. It's just, you're having so much fun, but of course she's not going to stick around and listen. It's, it's the same stage thing of why are they still there? You know, it's, <laughs> she forget that convention. Of course, she's just going to walk away because, well, sorry. She's just going to swim away because she can. Mm hmm and that's what that's what also brings it to a point. It's not that the fact that it not solely the fact that it's a great song, but it's also a huge character moment of I'm done listening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bye. I don't have time for this. I'm an 18-year-old mermaid with places to be. <clears throat> 16. 16 year old mermaid with places to be. And I have something to say about that later on, but oh, okay. <laughs> I'll get to it. Okay. Yeah, it was um I I, I think under the sea and it, they just have fun and which is something that they forgot about doing in the 70s and 80s is how to have fun with things and do something character wise but it doesn't have to take itself seriously like kiss the girl mm -hmm. in some ways is a very serious song but it's Serious because of the stakes. Yeah, they're still if, like enjoying it. Um, it's serious because if she doesn't get kissed, she'll be, you know, owned by Ursula for some reason. A weird kelp thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She'll turn to she'll turn to kelp. Um, and but but that song is just so fun. Like you can't help but smile throughout that whole song. I like your point about them having fun because yes, they did relearn how to have fun with this movie and there are a lot of fun moments. And I almost feel like after Little Mermaid was a smash hit, they kind of went, oh, okay, we had too much fun. Because 
there are parts of this movie that I feel just dramaturgically don't fit and don't work. The whole mm. French chef thing with Sebastian adds nothing to this movie. <laughs> uh, it, it gave Jack the biggest laughs. Yeah, it's it's like an okay Tom and Jerry segment is what it is. Yeah. I I remember I remember it being better than it was. I remember like, oh, it's this scene. This is going to be so much fun. Then I'm like, where is this coming from? And why are we still doing it? I had the opposite like, of like, oh, man, it's the French chef scene. I'm like, okay, that was actually way shorter than I thought it was. It works until the actual fight scene. Like, Le Poisson is one of the best. <laughs> and I chop off the heads. <laughs> and I pull out their bones. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. The the setup is great, and then the fight is like, why? Yeah, it's not necessary. Ah, uh, it, <laughs> oh, it's just it's just Howard Ashman rip riffing on this French chef and just making it feel like a horrifying experience. Like this stuff that you thought was delicious is actually gruesome. It's gruesome, and these characters, you're going to eat these characters, you're probably going to have crab tonight, and you're going to feel bad about it because you're eating Sebastian, okay? Okay, what what, what American child in 1989 was going to go home and eat crab that night? I don't know. It was America in the eight, late 80s. I'm sure that some of them were. Okay. At least imitation crab. Mm, imitation crab. It's the best. That I that paint my... on the heads and I <laughs> make imitation spine. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. There was that. I feel like the song worked. The, the action didn't. Um, can we talk about Ursula real quick? I don't know if that's a real quick one, but yeah, please. Can we? I think... Ursula is one of the most perfect Disney characters ever. Mm-hmm. However, Who there are some. Who doesn't have motivation? I was going to say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Performance wise, she's the best Disney villain, Disney character in a lot of ways but who has no reason for doing anything that she does. I know, and Ariel does, does nothing. Like, you get to the end, like, there's a big conflict scene, and Ariel, like, climbs up to the boat, and, like, Ursula loses the voice magic talisman, and it breaks, and Ariel gets her voice back. She does nothing to earn that. There's no resolution there between Ariel and Ursula. Just like, oh, I have my voice back. Great. Thank you. <laughs> if she had fought for it, if she had done something, I feel like if they remade it, which they're about to remake it, That's um, true. in live action... I feel like that's going to be one of their main things is Ariel will Ariel will have to earn her voice back in some way that she will be a stronger character much like what they did with 2017 Belle in Beauty and the Beast they tried to fix some of those dramaturgical issues from Beauty and the Beast and make Belle stronger and take charge of her actual life but on the flip side, whereas I wonder how you can make a remake of a perfect movie with Beauty and the Beast, um, and it was, I think, a weaker remake. Um, it was. I'm it excited was. for The Little Mermaid after having rewatched this original Little Mermaid because I think they can actually make it stronger and better. 
the only thing, and I'm so sorry to say this, the only thing that I'm a little bit nervous about is, I mean, Alan Menken's coming back, which, yay, awesome, Alan Menken. Um, I don't know how I feel about Lin-Manuel Miranda coming into The Little Mermaid. I feel, and believe me, folks who've listened to our show, uh, you know how I feel strongly in a positive way about Lin-Manuel Miranda, but I'm just a little nervous. I'm into but I, but it. I, he, he did, his Moana stuff I thought was really good. His Moana felt like, yeah, it, it felt Disney renaissance and it's the same even motif as The Little Mermaid. Yeah. So it, it could work. I'm a little nervous. But I know that he's a theater kid who grew up on Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and so and grew up on these same movies. You know, these are the formative movie Disney films. So when I go and think of animation, the first ones that pop into my head are these ones. Like, you know, these ones are the core of my understanding of animation yeah so so we got really sidetracked but ursula <laughs> ursula okay every scene that ursula is in um you just you see her wheels turning you get an acting master class like like live action actors can learn everything from watching Ursula, mm-hmm. um, her performance. Um, my my wife Rochelle was when she was rewatching it. She's like, "Oh, I never noticed that gesture, or I never noticed." <laughs> There's a moment when Ursula's made the deal. She's just sung, you know, "Poor Unfortunate Souls," which oh, so good. Um, so she's just sung "Poor." Unf- I'm getting into my physicality is changing oh, as I speak about it. souls. So sad. <laughs> so she's just sung this song. Um, and in the middle section where she's convincing Ariel to give up her voice and she gets, you start to see the spell and the, the color green comes in because it's a villain thing. And the, the arms come out and they grab Ariel's voice out and pluck it from her and um, Ursula's holding the shell, and as she's holding the shell, she's biting her lower lip. Like, she's just biting her lower lip, excited, can't contain herself that she's getting it. She's just, like, waiting for it. She's like, I never noticed that Ursula bites her lip there. Or that at another point, she's, like, licking her teeth in anticipation of something else. It's just these acting moments and that's what you get with the disney renaissance i think more than anything is you get characters who can act yeah no one is ever still in a scene there's no background characters they're always all doing something unique to their character mm-hmm. and it's gesture is as important as anything i mean there's uh, you start to understand who these characters are by gesture so for example um, moving from Ursula, you get King Triton. He's just gone off the handle like any father would, um, blown off some steam and blew up his 
daughter's grotto of stolen human artifacts. And he hears his daughter crying and he turns back and he looks and then he turns back and keeps, keeps going, realizes what he's done and feels remorse. And it's just a, it's a teensy moment, but it is, it's everything. And I think Disney solidifies that it's about two things. It's about character and story. And I think they finally understood that in the Disney Renaissance and, and their characters become more interesting and fuller and richer. And um, by the fear, sheer fact that for about a third of the movie, their main character doesn't speak. Yeah. And you understand everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And you understand everything she's feeling and what she wants to say and what she can't say and what she wants to say. And you understand everything. And it's all through gesture. I mean, they couldn't have done the little mermaid in that way in the seventies and eighties period, because they just weren't there in their artistry. They just weren't. I agree. I feel like a lot of this movie is, it's a turning point. A lot of it is like specifically a response to like old Disney movies. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, like you mentioned King Triton being sad and realizing what he did. There's a lot of like, wrathful dad moments where Triton immediately regrets what he's done. And you're like, he's a big softy who's king. <laughs> so you get but that. You get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Ariel isn't a perfect princess. She misbehaves all the time. And Eric, people don't like Eric. And he is, he's kind of blah, but like, this is the best Disney prince we've ever had at this point in 1989. I mean, he had a name. Yes. <laughs> he had a name. He had side characters. He had a plot. He didn't like being princely. Like they make him the whole statue that makes him look like Prince Charming. He's, oh no, thank you. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, it's. I think seen through today's lens with many more Disney movies and animated movies since then, we could say like, oh yeah, this wasn't perfect, but at the time, this was the pinnacle of what they'd done. Mm-hmm. And I think if Disney animation had ended with the little mermaid, like we're going to go out of business. Let's do one last thing. If that had been their last thing, it would have been a wonderful period on the end of like, if you had looked at the book end of snow white and the seven dwarfs to have the little mermaid be the end of Disney animation, it would have been like, Ah, that's a fitting series finale to the story of of Disney animation. Like, oh, that's we did it. You guys did it. You got you got back and made better what was there and you know, made it your own. And I think some of that comes of course from we can't discount the influence of Howard Ashman coming in and making choices and telling them, no, this is what you have to do for story and structure. And um, his influence gets even bigger in Beauty and the Beast. And he's responsible for a great deal, much of the storytelling in that one. So 
And when somebody says, no, it's about character, <laughs> they're all individual characters. You can really see that. Yeah. Hmm. So should we talk about Tarzan? <laughs> or do we have more to say about Little Mermaid? No, let's go to Tarzan. I feel like that's a good, that's a good transition to Tarzan. <laughs> and I think we should talk about Tarzan first and then wrap up with like comparing the arc that Disney Animation took. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Okay. Now you recommended Tarzan to me because you had a positive opinion of it. And I was surprised. I have, okay. I have a couple of opinions about Tarzan. So um, I, in college, I forced my... Um, theater professor, uh, Stephen Mark Weiss, who was one of the most cultured gentlemen I had ever met, um, who loved um, films and had his classical music take up three walls of one room in his house, organized first by composer, then by conductor. Um, so that, if that tells you a little bit of... <laughs> who Stephen Mark Weiss was, um, uh, he was very cultured and amazing. And I took him to go see The Emperor's New Groove. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which tells you about my aesthetics. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but we got into this conversation about Disney animation and he said um, he, he just loved Tarzan. And we talked about it and he said it was so close to some of the originals. He's like, but then they did terrible things like that stupid Trash in the Camp song. They, take, they took all these diversions that they didn't need to take. And he's like, it was nearly perfect. It was gorgeous. Um, and so when I think back on Tarzan, I remember Stephen, who understands story and character and his love of that. And, but also I start to see the, the problematic nature of the way the story is told. So yes, um, when, when the film started, it starts off, which <laughs> um, is a nice parallel. It starts off with a ship, um, but it's on fire. So it's like this special effects extravaganza. It's just yeah. ship on fire. It's one of the most impressive looking moments on animation, you know, that's ever been animated. Um, but it's, there's not a lot happening character wise. It's all just visual effects, which kudos to Mark Dindal, who um, was, you know, one of the visual effects supervisors um, who also would then go on to direct the emperor's new groove. So link up there. Um, but I just remember how visually stunning Tarzan was. And the thing that was missing, I think, was they, they started to lose the idea of character and storytelling. Yeah. They knew parts that they wanted to hit going in, but it's like they couldn't figure out how to get between those parts all the time. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, my biggest criticism that I still have after having watched this is while the Phil Collins music is better than I remember it being, and I'll admit it's been stuck in my head for a few days, I can't get it out. <laughs> I said it. But the music has nothing to do with 
moments in the movie. The music is mm-hmm. all montages. There's a lot of montage in this movie. Yeah, th- that was one thing that surprised me. There are three distinct montages, all set to Phil Collins' music. <laughs> There's the opening, um, which I think is the best montage of them all. Yeah, it's a um, prologue it's- montage. That's fine. Especially when they they use the leopard's face to change from morning to night, and they use the eyeballs. Oh, that's such a beautiful shot. Um, and that's again, it's all just beautiful shots. Um, so that's the first montage is the opening montage, and then we have the Tarzan growing up and learning to be his own animal self montage, where you see him like, oh, so I see rhinoceros horns. I shall make a spear. Or I see these monkeys swinging. I'll learn how to swing. I'll do this. I'll learn this. So he learns to be his own self by watching the other animals because the gorillas don't give him everything he needs to be who he is. And then we get Tarzan learning about the world of humans. So um, I believe that's Son of Man is the yeah. song that goes along with that one. Is that the two um, worlds, one family? Two Worlds, One Family is the opening. The opening. Two Worlds, One, one family. family. Yes, and then the Tarzan growing up. Oh, that's, I want to sh- I want to know. Can I you wanna show me? I want to know. Yeah, so Son of Man is Tarzan growing up. And I want to know, uh, Strangers Like Me is the name of that song, uh, the third montage. Okay, there we go. So, oh, I, I was afraid for a moment there <laughs> that I wasn't going to be able to. Uh, keep my Disney card. So that's that's where we are. Three montages in a single movie. And while they are catchy, my one big criticism, which I feel is like a big negative to start the movie with, is almost immediately, like, Kala, the gorilla mother, loses her baby in the opening montage. And the Phil Collins music goes, No words describe a mother's tears. And yet here we are with Phil Collins singing about mother's tears. <laughs> so i started with an eye roll i didn't go in expecting to like the movie at all and i started with an eye roll and it kind of warmed me up it was better than i thought (laughs) and i i feel like here's the difference that the music plays so they they've done this before in terms of getting an international recording artist they got sir elton john for the lion king However, they paired him up with Tim Rice, who, you know, is the lyricist of theater works such as My Favorite Musical of All Time, Jesus Christ Superstar, or um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, or Evita, you know, chess. He's done, he knows lyrics. And I'm not saying Phil Collins doesn't. So don't come at me, Phil Collins fans. Um, I don't know what the Venn diagram of people who listen to our podcast and people who listen to Phil Collins' music, but they, it, it might link up somehow. Um, <laughs> Cover all your bases. I, I know. I have to be careful. But I, I think the difference is that the music and lyrics in Tarzan are about what's kind of the feeling of what's happening to the character and isn't coming out of the character. It's about the character experience, but from an outsider to that. Yes, it's like it's like Phil Collins wrote an entire album that told a story through music and they made a movie about that. 
Yeah, yeah. It's not a movie musical. It's a movie with music that tells a story. <laughs> right. I mean, the the other link up is it's you know it's it's thematic. It's like let's talk about the feeling of being of in two worlds. Like you don't fit in either world. And I'm going to tell you the story about what it's like to learn things. And then I'm going to tell you what it's like to like be different. You know, it's so it's thematic work. It's not character work. So you're not talking about, look at Tarzan. He's learning things. You know, it's, it's about learning things is interesting. <laughs> no one's ever but felt this way before. <laughs> isn't it strange? But it's not about, you know, it's not Tarzan coming out and saying, um, and yes, they have the lyric, I want to know, can you show me? I want to learn about these strangers like me. But you don't feel like it's Tarzan saying that. No. Yeah. Um... <sighs> it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like Tarzan saying that. You can see he's feeling that. The acting in Tarzan is really great. Um, yeah, it is, especially for so many characters who either like peter out or like don't need to be in the movie at all. <laughs> Tantor. Tantor. <laughs> Why is Tantor in this movie? Um, Jack's favorite moment is a Tantor moment where he says, ow, my butt, because he's five. And there's two things that you can um, really do to make Jack laugh, and it's talk about butts. Or have a character faint, which Tarzan did. So I think right now he says Tarzan is his favorite Disney movie. No. <laughs> oh, I've gone wrong. <laughs> so I don't know how that's happened. Okay. So, no, he, he loved Tarzan. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But why couldn't another character say, Al, my butt? I, I know. What does Tantor add? There are many butts in there that could have been hurt. It's like, you know, it'd be funny. Person. Let's put a Jewish elephant in this movie. <laughs> um, and then I will say this during the trash in the camp scene, um, which doesn't even try to have lyrics. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's stomp for kids. Um, <laughs> yes. and it's like, you, you remember the part of bare necessities where, or I want to be like you, where they just had some crazy lyrics. Let's just do that. But with sounds. And it's, it's and, Turk's crowning scene as a character. Um, and then Jack was on his feet. I was like, oh, no, he loves it. Oh, he's eating it up. And it, it does nothing character-wise. It does nothing story-wise. It's just, it's, it just does nothing. It does nothing. Stephen, you were right. You were right, Stephen. It does nothing. Um, but... And I remember I was a big fan of in back in the day of the Rosie O'Donnell show. Okay. Because that was because Rosie was very big. Um, so she was telling the story about recording that song, and Phil Collins like, yeah, yeah, it was it was you were really good that time. Um, just a little off key. Can we try it again? And then they would do it again. She, he'd be like, yeah, okay, great. That was better. And then he'd turn off the microphone and give this look to the guys and like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so she talked about how off key she was during the recording of that song. Oh, she seemed fine. I thought that it all fit in the movie. It did. Yeah. It did. But it just, I don't know. But she's Turk. She doesn't care. She's her own kind of like 
gorilla. I see something happening here. I know. It's like her character is like, let's take all of the best side characters. Let's make it like a little bit Sebastian, a little bit Pumbaa, um, a little bit Iago, and just make a gorilla. Voiced by Rosie. Yeah. Yeah. And she, and, her character's a reason to be there. She adds things and does things. I wish she had more. But Turk's she, Turk's best moment. I mean, no disrespect, Miss <laughs> O'Donnell. Turk's best moment is when Tarzan brings Jane back to the um, gorilla um, nests, and Turk just stares at her. And then looks at Tarzan like, what have you done? What have you done? Like, that's the best character moment for Turk. Like, you've betrayed us. Like, as much as Turk doesn't agree with Kerchak and the way he treats Tarzan, there is this thing of, we're a family and what have you done? And that's the best character moment. And I think if you, if you cut the songs out you'd probably have be on your way towards a better movie haha <clears throat> <clears throat> we said it so yeah i'm sorry mr collins they are very catchy they're good songs but you gotta you gotta kill your darlings sometimes yeah as they say which makes me wonder <clears throat> and because they did turn tarzan into a musical which didn't do well did they add songs they did add songs, but I think they also kept songs. But I'm like, so who sang them? <laughs> did you change the lyrics? Because who sang them? That's, that's the question that I have. I'm going to look it up. Let's see if I can find the answer. Tarzan, musical. Thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> <clears throat> musical. Um, Two Worlds is sung by Tarzan mother, father, Kala Kerchak. For some reason. Makes no sense. Um, what are some of the other ones? Son, Son of, of Man. Man. Turk, Kala, and Tarzan. I could see that. That's a good... That gives Turk purpose. Hmm. Turk is the one like, I like this kid in the opening scene in the movie. So I'm imagining the song is like Turk convincing the other gorillas. Like, you can be okay with him. What about Strangers Like Me? Is that still in there? Tarzan and Jane. That makes sense. That's fine. And it ends with uh, two worlds on repeat with Tarzan and Jane. Act two begins with Trash in the Camp, which apparently has words now, because Turk is listed as singing it. Maybe those are the words I keep. I'm seeing who else is in here. They don't have... I don't think the villain sings the song in the musical either. Hmm. So Clayton does not have a song? I don't see Clayton listed. As a character? Or as for a, songs, for songs. For songs. That's oh, and Phil Collins. Phil Collins, who wrote five songs for the film, wrote nine new songs for the stage version. Hmm. And... I don't know. All music says 
Um, Colin seems to understand that theater lyrics, perhaps even more than pop song lyrics, need to be concise to get dramatic points across quickly and clearly. What he doesn't seem to realize is that that doesn't mean that they should be a little more than a string of platitudes, cliches, and contemporary slang. Oh. It's a shame his words are as bad as his music is good. <laughs> <laughs> All music said that, not writers get animated. <laughs> I could buy it, but I'm not gonna, <laughs> I didn't say it. Yeah, we're not, not endorsing it, but we're not saying it. We'll leave a link to Tarzan the Musical on Apple Music on our show notes so you can listen to it. Okay. I, or Spotify I, or whatever thing you use to listen to music and you can judge for yourself. I do feel like I have to listen to it now. <laughs> I know what I'm doing after this is over. Listening to Tarzan the Musical. <laughs> Dweep up. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, from Little Mermaid to Tarzan, what's <laughs> changed in 10 years? <sighs> focus. They've changed their focus a little bit. Yes, but it's like the... It's like there's a spectrum of focus, and if Little Mermaid mm -hmm. starts on one end, Tarzan ends on the other. Like they, the, the focus, the golden spots in the middle of the spectrum, and a lot of the middle of this Renaissance hit that perfectly. Mm-hmm. And like Little Mermaid and Tarzan have opposite problems. I think that if we look, if we go through the Renaissance, so if we go through Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. Um, Lion King, Pocahontas. I'm just going to list movies now. So if you get to, once you get to Pocahontas, um, your characters, it starts, it starts to be also about the technology. Mm -hmm. um, because we get Lion King has the wildebeest stampede. Pocahontas has some really great imagery. Um, well, and I, Aladdin, I, Beauty and the Beast have the same thing too. They do, but because of limitations, they have single scenes of it. So they choose their centerpieces, and it doesn't all become about that. But because computer technology is becoming better, then you can start having more in it. So you get to something like Hunchback of Notre Dame, and you have multiple instances. All the villagers are done with computer animation in Hunchback. Hmm. So they're all able to be, be done that way. Um, you get in Tarzan, all the trees. So Tarzan is basically going through tree roller coasters. Um, they're just showing off and it just isn't. And, yes. Yeah. And you could, you could feel that it's, it's not, technology to serve the story it's story serving technology at that point is what it feels like yeah um, and the leopard is computer animated also so it, it just starts to be a little bit confused because technology starts to get in the way and we're going to see that more um, in the next this is the turning point. You're going to start noticing technology just a little bit more um, taking 
focus and stealing focus away. So they're they're trying to be epic at this point. Um, Hunchback is a major moment where it it's going to go epic, but also they have to remember their Disney movie. So they put in gargoyles, which completely throw off the tone and confuse and muddy the message. And it gets like, oh, the lyric. Um, Paris, the city of lovers is glowing this evening. True, it's because it's on fire, but still there's l'amour. Like, it's like, we're going to have this love song while this terrible, awful thing is going on in Paris. Like, Paris is on fire. People are dying. And I'm going to sing about, we're going to sing this song called A Guy Like You. And it's going to be sweet. And I'm like, I, th- that didn't bother me when I watched it because, you know, I was in high school and what do I know? But when I watched, rewatched it recently, I was like, this is two movies. Like, two, there are two movies here. And they do not go well unless um, Quasimodo is schizophrenic. Like, unless he's, unless he, he can't, and he, in some ways, he doesn't understand reality. Uh, and yes, in some ways he is broken, but the movie presents everything as if everything's okay. Um it's interesting that you bring that up because I feel like by the time they get to Mulan, like they understand the importance of editing down and they get like cocky and overconfident with Tarzan. Like, oh, if we edit this, this will be fine. And then it just wasn't. They edited too far. Because Mulan was going to have a villain song and they're like, this doesn't fit with this movie. And they cut mm-hmm. it. Great choice. I support that. Perfect choice. Yes. Tarzan. Who needs to sing anything? Let's have montages. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it started to feel like we have these ingredients, let's put it in and then we'll go and we should be able to have a movie out of it. Um, Hercules, um, I feel like they went to the... I feel like... Here, here's, here's what happened. So they had Little Mermaid and they had Beauty and the Beast and they knew what they were doing and then they lost Howard Ashman. And in the middle of Aladdin. And Aladdin started getting confused. Like Aladdin started this strange, um, like we have Robin Williams, so let's let this comedian do everything. He's a star. Let's let him do stuff. And like people love that. Um, So here was a side character who was as interesting as the main character and they thought it was because of the jokes. They didn't think it, they didn't realize it was because of the performance. <laughs> so it's like, oh, what we need is jokey, whatever. And then we'll be able to get there. Um, so that's when you end up with three comedians as hyenas um, in Lion King. And it just gets more out of hand as we, as we get there. So I feel like Aladdin was a breaking point in some ways because they they realized uh, they started going back to the well. So if you look at Mulan, it has a lot of Aladdin in its DNA. Yeah. Um, Eddie Murphy, of course. And thank goodness they edited Eddie Murphy down a little bit and he's controlled <laughs> Eddie Murphy because when you don't control Eddie Murphy, you end up with Shrek. <laughs> 
instead of Mulan. It's a it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slippery slope. It's the <laughs> it's the zero to Shrek scale of Eddie Murphyness. <laughs> exactly. Or you get the clumps. You know, you get you get Nutty Professor too. Oh. Or Norbert or all those. So this <laughs> like, normalizes Shrek to like the middle of the Eddie Murphy scale. I, unfortunately, I think it does. <laughs> so. I just feel like there's there are great movies in here and they they started to understand but I think they they lost some focus as they ended up to Tarzan as as we've said. And I haven't watched all the credits for movies around this time Disney or not animated wise but something I thought was really interesting watching the credits of Tarzan is that they didn't have like a cast list so much as they listed each character name and they had supervising animator and then voice actor. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting to me because I know there's been discussion about that more recently as well, of like lifting up the supervising animator of characters in these movies. Um, it's interesting that Tarzan did that and it didn't stick. Yeah, in... Well, actually in the Disney Renaissance... When I think it started with, I can't remember if it was Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast, but that's when you start getting supervising animator listed. Mm. Little Mermaid, I don't think you did. Little Mermaid, it was like, here are the people who animated and here are the, here's the voice cast. Um, but then they went by character once you got to Aladdin, I believe, because that's when I started learning, oh, Andreas Deja, he's going to do this. And... Glenn Keane, you, you start getting these rock star animators and you start to, oh, Eric Goldberg, you know, I'm going to watch that name. So you start knowing the names of the animators as much as the names of um, anyone else, really, the voice actors. They become synonymous with the characters. So when you look at Aladdin, it's like Eric Goldberg, Genie. So then you start seeing what else Eric Goldberg has done. Oh, he did Phil in Hercules. Makes sense. And... And then you go, oh, wait, Andrea Stasia wanted to try something different instead of doing a villain in a Disney movie. So he animated the character of Hercules instead of Hades, which would have been easy for him. So you get a hero animated by Andrea Stasia and some interesting stuff starts happening there. So uh, I don't know. It, it is as much about the artist's get lifted up so the renaissance becomes about them and i would struggle to name off any key animators now yeah now right now it's more about interestingly enough the writers and the directors um i mean it was back then we get um john musker and ron clements who are really responsible for a lot of the films we get little mermaid from them um and they did uh moana didn't they they did Moana. They did Princess and the Frog. Um, they did Hercules. So <laughs> they, they were very much involved in a lot of the spiritual um, themes of the Disney Renaissance. So it makes sense that they did Moana. Because in, in some ways, Moana calls back to some of those earlier films, too. But again, it's it's more about the story folks and the directors now as opposed to the individual animators. And I think part of that, I don't know 
it, you know, if computer animation is more by scene and by committee as opposed to you do all the Moana scenes, you do all this. It's like, no, you work on this scene between these two characters or so that's and that's my ignorance about computer animation and the process. Maybe so. that's why they're having the discussion of like bringing that practice back. Mm -hmm. Which I didn't realize was bringing it back. I thought it was starting for the first time. I did not pay attention enough. <laughs> and that's me again going through and trying to watch all the special features on everything as they were coming out and wanting to devour that and learning the names of the people who are working on it and trying to figure all this out. Just seeing the growth and the change in all of them. But there was a lot to love about the Disney Renaissance. Yeah. So at the end here, to recap what's changed, we have more technology emphasis in computer animation. The musical mm -hmm. styles evolving. Not saying getting better. It's evolving. Mm -hmm. um, we mentioned uh, <clears throat> underdeveloped side characters or overdeveloped side characters. <laughs> side characters not in the sweet spot of just right. <clears throat> um, and this emphasis on animators has kind of grown throughout the Renaissance. So what's, mm -hmm. what's the same between Little Mermaid and Tarzan? What is the same? I, I, I noticed, yeah. like, Tarzan gets shot throughout the course of the movie. And he, like, grabs his arm. But they don't animate anything there <laughs> in the movie. Yes. I think you wrote down a note that it happened in the trailer. There was blood in the trailer. Yes. In the, in the original Tarzan trailer, they, um, the leopard slices, um, claws at Tarzan, which happens in the film. And you see like claw marks, which disappeared at the end of the scene. <laughs> um, in the trailer, he still has claw marks and they stay there. And I was like, wow, they actually left a character injured. <laughs> they, they left it. And then when I saw the film, I'm like, oh, okay, it's gone. Yeah. No more. Okay. <laughs> Edit it down. Um, um, I, one change from Aladdin to Tarzan is Tarzan is allowed to have nipples. <laughs> so is King Triton. So Aladdin, they took him away and Tarzan, they brought him back. So. Wow. I guess I don't pay that much attention to male nipples in Disney movies. This was around the period of, um, you know, Batman forever. Oh, yeah, and the Batman nipples. The bat nipples. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> there was a lot happening nipple-wise in Hollywood. <laughs> there were a lot of nipple scandals. <laughs> um, thematically, the this other thing that is the same is the animators are just getting stronger. So if you look at a scene like when Tarzan meets Jane and he takes off her glove and puts his hand on her hand, the acting is amazing. And it's not, there are no words there. That it's, is a spectacular scene in Tarzan. It is so great. Um, I mean, it goes from being a little bit ridiculous and um, heightened where she's, 
he's kind of tickling her, like grabbing her foot and tickling. And then he like tries to lift her skirt. She's like, oh, get off, get off, get off. <laughs> like the great mini driver delivery of that line. And then it's just so intimate. And it's just, you just feel everything through those characters. It's just so well done. I think that's something that's consistent throughout, even um, from Little Mermaid to Tarzan, is they have, they there are these moments that they remember what it's about and what that they, when they let the animators do real acting moments, real character moments, it just shines through and heightens it. And then, hang on, what was the next movie? After Fantasia. After Fantasia 2000, it was, I believe it's Emperor's New Groove. Is it really? It's either that or Dinosaur. Dinosaur! And then there was Dinosaur. Was and it then Dinosaur? Emperor's New Groove. Yeah. Okay. Fantasia 2000, Dinosaur. Let's preview next time for our listeners. Fantasia <laughs> 2000, Dinosaur. Then the Emperor's New Groove, the rare high point of the next period. Then Atlantis, Tear. Oh, so close. Lilo and Stitch. Also Up there. Good. Treasure Planet. Uh, underrated, but not by much. That's um, John Musker and Ron Clement. Oh, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John, John and Ron. Uh, Brother Bear, which I don't understand the virulent hate for. Yeah. It's not a good movie, but it's not a bad movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Home on the Range, which I haven't seen. Uh, Chicken Little. Maybe I should force you to watch that one. Oh, uh, maybe. Chicken Little. Man, there are a lot of movies here. And then Meet the Robinsons. That's And that's where the next period ends. Yeah. Because after that, we get Bolt. Yeah, which is... We'll talk about why Bolt is important, because I feel like people don't talk about why Bolt is important. Mm-hmm. That's it's part seven. not just because of John Travolta. That's part, part seven. Part seven. Sorry. Oh, Princess and the Frog is in part seven. I thought that would be in part six. Nope. Wow. Wow, mm-hmm. as Owen Wilson would say. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, a lot to look forward to in our next conversation. It's another transformation phase. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, weird things. Like, if I told you... I'll save it for next time. Never mind. <laughs> it's one of those things, like, I learned, like, Wait, what happened? Who worked on what? And they do what now? Oh, okay. Sure, sure, Disney. Um, yeah. So, Chris, do you have a favorite thing either from the Disney Renaissance or from either of our two movies? From the two movies, I'll just say the probably the most striking thing that I had forgotten about was how Tarzan opened. So, the opening montage of Tarzan just as a whole from the ship all the way through they're building their tree house um and they they get the parents get killed and the they actually show a leopard stealing a baby gorilla <laughs> off to eat it like they they went for it man they're like we're not we're not joking around with this one this is a serious movie in the jungle the jungle's a dangerous place so i just that it's a really strong opening It'd be better with a different song um, or without a song. Like, 
it's it's just a really strong um, opening, um, and it, I was I was struck by that again, just how how well that moment is. How about for you? Um, I'm gonna go with Ursula's song "Poor Unfortunate Souls" just because it's a perfect Disney song. I feel like I have less respect for Ursula as a character after having rewatched Little Mermaid, just because, as we said, like, oh, why is she doing any of this? <laughs> um, but Poor Unfortunate Souls is a perfect Disney song. We didn't talk about it, but um, Ursula, of course, being inspired by the John Waters muse, Divine the Drag Queen. Um, Google it. It's a real thing. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just a wonderful moment. Yeah, and I think that's my... One of my actual favorite things from, you know, all of the Disney Renaissance is Ursula. She's just so wonderful. Ursula and the genie, I think, together are just. I'd watch that movie. Just... Ursula and the genie buddy picture. That'd be a fun film. Like a Thelma and Louise buddy picture. Ah. <laughs> oh. <sighs> so good. It writes itself. <laughs> Uh, Shall we talk homework time? Let's. For next time, your homework is to watch all of Star Wars Rebels. Or at least the end, and accept that we're going to talk about spoilers if you haven't seen it. The series is over after season four. Uh, We've done a couple episodes in the past during the progress of Rebels. We want to... We need another alliterative R word. I think you said retrospective. We need a Rebels retrospective. <laughs> <clears throat> so hang on to that. Um, as always, thank you to our engineer, Nigel Catino, and to our musician theme composer, Jacob Reed. You can tweet at us on the Twitters, at WG Animated. Let us know what you feel about the Disney Renaissance and the, what was your favorite film for the Disney Renaissance. You can comment on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash WG Animated and go to writersgetanimated.tumblr.com for links to show notes and articles and other fun things, probably including title, Titus Burgess. So sorry, Titus. Um, performing Poor Unfortunate Souls. Oh, wow. Um, you ha- have I not shown shared this with you? So they did turn The Little Mermaid into a Broadway musical, and Titus Burgess played Sebastian. The role he wanted to play was Ursula, which missed opportunity not ca- casting him as Ursula. And so he performed on stage um, singing Poor Unfortunate Souls. And it is, as one would expect, magnificent uh we need to end this episode recording so i can go watch that right now and then listen to the tarzan musical good night everybody good night everybody